It's Thursday on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston. And before we begin, we got to clear up some business. As this podcast grows, the number of listeners who keep us honest grows. And I heard from one yesterday who said, you misspoke when you said that it was Jimmy Carter who was doing whip inflation now. Back in the day, it was Gerald Ford. I should have known better. I think I even have a win button laying around in my attic. Second, I want to point out that on Saturday, we have the 15th anniversary of Laura Johnston joining our newsroom. Oh, yeah. And we've never been the same since. <laughs> I remember Neither when, have I. <laughs> I remember when she came in to interview. I believe, Laura, you were the first hire we made after I had become Metro Editor. I remember interviewing you with, my, uh, with our colleague, former colleague, Elizabeth McIntyre. One of the best decisions we ever made. You got me off on the right start. <laughs> well, thank you. I can't believe um, how much time I've spent in the newsroom, but it, it's like been the entirety of my adult life, like buying a house, having kids. It's, it's all tied in with The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com, and it's all been really satisfying. Mm. And for people just to understand, to put this in perspective about how old Laura really is now, <laughs> she got here before the county corruption crisis exploded <laughs> into the news. It is like ancient times. I know, so I cannot blame myself for the lack for, for the corruption. Like I just, <laughs> I just came on the scene. But um, Layla has been here even longer than me. I don't know how many years oh you're my at, gosh, Layla. 18, 17, something like 18? that. Oh my gosh. 18 or 19. Yeah, since I was 23. So. We're. We're, oh my God, that's your entire adult yeah. life. It was a bambino when okay. I came here. <laughs> All right, third thing is we will not have a podcast tomorrow. No sooner does Laura hit her 15th anniversary than she quits working. <laughs> She'll be off tomorrow through next week. Courtney Estalfi will join us next week. Tomorrow is a, a high holy day for a lot of people who listen to this. And even though we usually record in the morning, people catch up with it later. We figure we should respect the holiday, the holy day, and we'll be back on Monday. Let's begin. How is Maple Heights in the middle of a national story about whether Netflix and Hulu should be paying money to cities where they operate? Lisa, this is fascinating that Maple Heights, little Maple Heights, is in this major position. Yeah, Maple Heights is one of 2,000 communities across the U.S. that are part of a federal class action lawsuit against Netflix and Hulu. And this all stems uh, over the issue of whether or not Netflix and Hulu are, quote, video service providers. So the Ohio Supreme Court has been directed by the judge overseeing this case, uh, U.S. District Judge James Gwynn, to answer some legal questions. And once that it has been answered and an opinion has been issued by the state Supreme Court, then the lawsuit can resume. All of this hinges on a 2007 Ohio law that gives the Ohio Department of Commerce franchising authority for video service providers. And this allowed them to lay their, you know, fiber optic lines in right of ways across the state. And then the state gets 5% of the gross revenue of these providers. So Netflix and Hulu say that they are specified digital products, not video service providers, because they don't need cable. You know, it's a streaming service, so you don't need to lay any cable or anything for that. So that's their argument. But uh, yeah, so I think it, Maple Heights is in the in the national eye because of this Ohio, the law that needs to be, you know, d resolved. Yeah, I look, it's an interesting argument. I, I don't know how it'll end up, but the, the, the whole way we 
ingest content has changed. And the old methods, which used to be taxed, aren't as, as common. And so is there a revenue method for public entities based on these changes, which is what they're trying to argue? They got companies making money in their city, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Netflix is collecting fees in their city and they're saying we should get a piece of that. And Ohio, you know, didn't Netflix lawyers are saying that Ohio did not require video service authorization for their services. And they said, you know, if if this ruling doesn't go their way, that any streaming organization, be it a church, a Boy Scout troop or whatever, anybody who streams could then be called a video service provider. But the Ohio's Department uh, Deputy Solicitor General Mathura Sridharan uh, says that, hey, if they don't dig, they don't pay. So they're on Netflix and Hulu's side, and also Attorney General David Yost filed a friend of the court brief for Netflix and Hulu. David Yost is on the side of Netflix and Hulu. He's going against Maple Heights. That's that's the way I read it. I mean, he wow, filed a friend of the court. Yeah, he friend filed a friend of the court brief. Mm-hmm. Good old it, Dave Yost on the side it, of Ohioans. It feels like <laughs> laws just have not caught up with the modern business technology right like that we shouldn't even be having to decide this through the courts this should have been something that when netflix went online and stopped mailing everybody their dvds and we all stopped going to blockbuster they should have said okay if we relied on this tax before how are we going to make it up but you know the state government doesn't care because they don't care about cities getting their own local government money no but but it, it is true though that businesses that that conduct commerce in a jurisdiction usually you're taxed by that jurisdiction and this is not happening here uh it will have to it, it, you're right though laura this probably shouldn't be a court battle the legislature should take care of this they should they should bring order to it but with our gerrymandered legislature they really don't do anything that makes much sense so it leaves to the courts good stuff you're listening to today in ohio Oh, joy. Donald Trump is returning to Ohio. Where and when and Laura, why? I mean, I really cannot answer exactly why, because I, you know, that's like trying to get inside Donald Trump's head. But he's coming April 23rd to the Delaware County Fairgrounds. This is the first trip to Ohio since this massive rally at the Lorraine Fairgrounds last summer. That's when he was stumping for Max Miller. So obviously we've got an election coming up. May 3rd is the primary for most of our races. We still don't know about legislative districts, but maybe he's coming to make an endorsement in the Senate race. I don't know. He's slated to speak at seven, three hours of speakers before beginning at four. Sounds like a really good time. Yeah, our political team is starting to wonder whether he's going to do what he did in Pennsylvania, where he won't endorse a candidate, but he'll say, whatever you do, don't vote for that guy, meaning Matt Dolan, which would be interesting. That might actually persuade some people to vote for Matt Dolan. (laughs) (laughs) What's interesting is that Trump tried to get a rally closer to here in Portage County on April 24th, denied a permit by the county commissioners, even after Frank LaRose tried to intervene on his behalf. So... That's interesting. Yeah, I'm glad it's not local. It's it's let it be somewhere else in Ohio. Let somebody else deal with it. Good. It's today in Ohio. This is interesting. The Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office was trying to use inappropriate tactics to compel testimony from witnesses in a criminal case. 
Wait, well, what did the Ohio Supreme Court have to say about that? This is that? a v- very interesting set of facts here. We're, we're talking about a case in which this this guy, Darnell Eatman Jr., was charged with attempted murder after prosecutors said that he shot his uncle, Collis Miller, in September of 2017. They had been arguing on a Cleveland street. Miller, Miller needed surgery after his injuries, and Eatman pleaded not guilty, of course. After that... Miller, the uncle who was the alleged victim here, and his mom, Lisa Ford, who was also a witness, they just kind of disappeared, and prosecutors could not reach them with letters, phone calls, visits, and sometimes it seems Miller even answered the phone and pretended he was someone else. It was pretty clear he did not want to participate in this trial or prosecute his nephew, so under Ohio law, judges can require witnesses to post bond or even be jailed until trial if it's believed that they otherwise wouldn't appear in court to testify. So in May of 2019, prosecutors asked the court to compel Miller and his mother to either each pay $5,000 bond or go to jail until they testified. And the court said no, but they postponed the trial until July 2019 to give prosecutors more time to get Miller and his mother to cooperate. Well, that deadline came and went. And in July 2019, prosecutors again said they just couldn't find these two, and the court ended up dismissing the case. Well, the prosecutors appealed that decision, but the 8th District Court of Appeals upheld it because they said the prosecutors failed to establish probable cause that the witnesses wouldn't appear at trial. Well, this week, the Ohio Supreme Court upheld the ruling and said that the prosecutors failed to serve Miller or Ford with subpoenas or ensure that they knew about the subpoenas all the prosecutors said was that Miller and Ford were reluctant to cooperate, and that's not the same as blowing off a subpoena. And the prosecutors argued that under Ohio law, the court could have issued the material witness warrants that the prosecutors wanted without being being served a subpoena. And the Supreme Court says, yeah, that's true, but the U.S. and Ohio Constitution require probable cause for warrants to be issued, and the prosecutors didn't show probable cause that a warrant was needed to ensure that the witness appeared at Eamon's trial. I mean, they still have rights, basically. So, um, you know, the prosecutors disagree that they didn't clear that bar, but, you know, they'll have to live with that decision. And uh, that's that's where it stands. Yeah, you feel for the prosecutors, right? They're trying to prosecute a crime. It was a violent crime. They they want to do what they're supposed to do. But you always have that when the victims are reluctant to cooperate, it, it's a very, very challenging situation. I was on a jury a few years ago, and every witness that came in changed their story on the oh stand. And the prosecutor was just rubbing his temples <laughs> with every one. It's like, wait, but you said, yeah. And, you know, every one of them changed their testimony. It's very hard. But you still need to do due process. And they did take a shortcut here. And the Supreme Court, it was unanimous decision, too, right? There was no Yeah, quibbling. right, exactly. And, and yeah. I mean, if they were to drag these two into court in the way that they want to, I, well, how is that going to go once they're uh, they're forced to testify? Right, they're going to change it's, their story. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not going to. It's not going to go well. Yeah, it's <laughs> right. Right. Just imagine that scene in The Godfather Part Two, and you'll get how it's going to go. <laughs> anyway, interesting legal concept. Check out the story on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. We talked earlier in the week about the death of Isaiah Andrews, who wrongfully spent 45 years in prison before clearing his name, but he died before he could get compensation from the state for losing 
pretty much his entire adult life. Lisa, what happens now? Is there some way to, for compensation to come to his estate? There certainly is. Um, there are two court cases that will continue after Andrew's death. His attorney, Marcus Sedotti, said there's still a federal lawsuit versus the city of Cleveland and the Cleveland Police Department for wrongful conviction and withholding evidence. That, of course, will continue. They also filed a claim with the Ohio Court of Claims that allows wrongfully convicted people to get money from the state. And this is in the wake of an attorney general's ruling on wrongful imprisonment in the Andrews case. So this can move forward now. Andrews does have a wheel, a will. He names certain people and organizations, although we don't know who. And unfortunately, the attorneys cannot find the relatives of his wife, Regina, who he spent 45 years wrongfully for murdering her. And they finally found out her true murderer. So, yeah, um, it, it will go forward and that compensation will be paid out, apparently, to the people in his will or hopefully. We published a great story about him because when he got out of prison, he connected with somebody yeah. else who had been wrongfully imprisoned for a long time who really cared about him. They supported each other. Isaiah Andrews was older than the other guy, and so he kind of mentored him, and the younger guy drove him around to doctor's yeah. appointments. What and, a great story. And he was really... Yeah. yeah. His name was Charles ahead. Jackson. Let's talk about him a little bit because it is a great story. He actually met, ran into Isaiah on the shores of Lake Erie in April 2020, right after he was released. Um, they had met previously, they discovered, serving time in Mansfield and Richland prisons. Jackson was also wrongfully convicted of murder back in 1991, and he was released in 2018. So they ended up living together. And it kind of became a father-son relationship, as Charles said, and they really supported each other. And Charles Jackson is really kind of angry over the fact that Andrews was kept under house arrest for the last two years of his life. He couldn't really leave his house. Right. It's ridiculous because the evidence was pretty clear. He didn't kill his wife. So he spends all those years in prison for killing his wife. The Innocence Project gets him out based on the fact the police withheld exculpatory evidence and then they made him stay under house arrest. It, you know, he didn't get the cancer. The cancer that he had didn't return until after he was out for more than a year. And his attorney, Marcus Sedoti, said he could have done a lot with that year. Right. And Sedoti, I think, put in eight different petitions to get that ankle bracelet removed. Mm -hmm. And the court said no every time because the prosecutor fought it. It is another one of those cases, and we have so many of them, Layla's aware of this, of overzealous prosecution. Um, yeah. It's just a tragic, tragic story. Yeah. But at least they found each anyway, other, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, yes. And he cl did clear his name. He no he died knowing that the public knew he had not killed his wife. Adam Faris did a terrific job on this story. Check it out on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This is a big weekend for Holy Days in various religions, as I said at the top of the podcast. That's why we're not doing an episode on Friday. What are the chances people will return to in-person services for Easter and Passover? Laura, for the last two years, it's been a pretty big no. The, the raging coronavirus mostly kept people away. We sent a reporter out to find out if this was going to continue. Yeah, Alexis Oatman went and talked to some folks at synagogues and churches. And when this story was suggested, it's like, this is the big return. You know, it's a big spring holiday. Everybody gets out their, their best dresses and they come out. But the answer is, is more uh, vague and nuanced than that. I think after two years of remote services, people have gotten used to that. And 
some ex, you know, some of the religious leaders in Cleveland said they expect people, and some said uh, not so much. And I know from my experience, I went to church on Palm Sunday, and the pastor was explaining what they were planning for for Easter. They're going to live stream into the cafeteria, but he said we have no idea what to expect. We hope the crowds come, but we ha- we don't know. It seems like people are getting back together. If you saw any images from the uh, Justin Bibbs State of the City speech, which we'll be talking about a little later, it was packed. I mean, they were shoulder mm-hmm. to shoulder in that room. Uh, people seem like they're willing to go back. I was surprised that the people we talked to did not think they'd have big crowds. You suggested yesterday it might be because people have just become so used to streaming. I think so. I mean, if you could sit and watch church on your couch while you eat your breakfast or you could get <laughs> dressed up and drive to church and go in, um, I, I think I think people got used to that. And I think the weather will have a lot to do with it. Nobody nobody likes going out when it's cold or snowy or, you know, pelting hail like we've had recently. So but maybe if it's a beautiful day, people will want to go out. It's a little difference in an Orthodox synagogue. They can't do their services by Zoom. So that is required to be in person, but they have had fewer crowds lately. For Reform and Conservative synagogues, they offer live streaming services for their congregations. And I can, I mean, the beginning of the pandemic, obviously it began in March and we had Easter and Passover a few weeks later. And I just remember, do you remember the the video that the rabbis did telling people to stay home? And, And it's just, and and then you couldn't, all the churches were closed. And then, then, you know, the next year it was socially distant. And so you're right. This is the first year that there aren't the requirements in place, you know, to wear the mask and stay socially distant. But you know, I've been going to church and people are not shaking hands and the communal wine cup is not back. I don't know if anyone will ever want to do those things again. No, but we have talked. People right now seem to be in that phase where they've stopped wearing masks. They've mm-hmm. stopped taking precautions. We haven't had the subvariant really show up here much at, at, at all, uh, even though it's spreading on the East Coast. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if people don't return in force because this was always a day for that. We'll have to see. It's today in Ohio. What are the latest details on the man who died earlier this week in the Cuyahoga County Jail? Layla, we're not going to be surprised that nobody met, nobody caught what was going on for some period of yeah, time. Yeah, this is a sad development in, in the case of 39-year-old Shondo Moffat, who was the second inmate to die at the county jail this year. According to county medical examiner records, Moffat was found unconscious next to marijuana and and some yet to be identified what white powdery substance. And it seems guards did not check on him for about 30 minutes, despite the fact that the jail policy mandates officers check on inmates once every 15 minutes. And they say Moffat was staying in a dorm style cell that allowed inmates to move freely in a shared space outside of their cells. He laid down on a bed at about 11.30 a.m. and then wasn't found by a guard until about noon. And this failure to check on inmates, of course, is is a chronic problem that harkens back to the days of all those jail deaths starting in 2018 and the death this year of Adam Weekly, who was, you know, quote, down for hours before jail officers found him. And the problem is exacerbated by low staffing. The jail had 648 officers as of Monday. It needs 695 to be fully staffed. But officers call off, usually because of job burnout, and that can leave a single officer 
supervising 100 or 200 inmates instead of about 50. The, the other problem Moffitt's case points to is, is the presence of drugs and the jail's inability to clamp down on, on the flow of drugs into the facility. Earlier this year, they, they started scanning officers, attorneys, and employees as they are entering to try to spot, you know, the source of, you know, who is smuggling drugs into the jail. So more will be known about Moffitt's death soon. The full toxicology results take about six to eight weeks. So so we'll see more of the picture. But what we do see so far is really, really sad and, and frankly suggestive of a lot of unresolved problems at the jail. Well, and it gets back to the argument a bunch of people are making that we shouldn't be building a new jail until we figure out how to run one. And there's a lot of credibility for that. I, you know, instead of creating $6 million slush funds for each county council, why don't you increase the pay for guards by 50%, some big number, and build a, a tradition of professionalism where, where you have enough, they're well-trained, they, they take pride in their work, and they're not calling off because they're burned out. This, the problem is they don't have enough people. Nobody wants to do it. It's, it's a depressing place to be. So change that. Change, you know, build the tradition of excellence. It takes money. They have the money. They're in a position right now where they have the money. They're squandering it on slush funds and other nonsense, but they could fix this. And once the jail is professional, then think about the new one. Because there are people saying, we're going to build a new jail and this all this stuff will continue because we don't know what we're doing. I think others <laughs> others would, would argue that the jail, structure of the jail, lends itself to a different kind of of monitoring of inmates, you know, which, you know, we've written a lot about that, about the way you can build a jail that creates an environment where you would patrol and monitor inmates differently. And uh, there is a more direct supervision that takes place when you when you lay out a jail in a certain way. So there's that argument. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you still need guards in the proper numbers who are doing what they're supposed to do. Well, how much how much could they not. pay you to go work in that facility? <laughs> no, but I believe if you raise the pay to a certain level, you would attract people from other other correctional facilities. I mean, money makes a difference, and if you pay people well and you invest in them in a pride in their work, you can change it. Look, there are plenty of law enforcement agencies where people take pride in their work and and know they're doing a public service. You've got to change the whole culture there. And, and we'll see. I, I mean, we'll have a new county executive coming in. Who knows? We'll, we'll figure out mm-hmm. what's going to happen. It's today in Ohio. Who's to blame for a snowbank that acted like a ramp and caused cars in two separate accidents to hurtle off of an Interstate 90 overpass and roll over multiple times? Lisa, you don't like to hear the word hurdle <laughs> when you're talking about a, an accident on an interstate. That's usually a word you reserve for, for space vehicles. What happened here? Yeah, I don't know if it's a who, but it's more of a what. So the, these were two nearly identical accidents that happened earlier this year at the same overpass at I-90 overpass at West 98th Street. And after reviewing the videos of both of these accidents, it appears that a snowbank that was piled up there, you know, on the shoulder against the berm acted as a ramp that sent the cars hurtling over the railing. 
So accident number one was January 20th. A car driven by 61-year-old Keith Schofield, he was coming home from Elyria, he was hit by an SUV, he was pushed into that snowbank against the barrier and then flipped over the barrier and landed on the roof down below. He was in the intensive care for three weeks. He had a broken femur and cracked vertebrae. He's still on a walker and still suffering from that accident. Accident number two was February 7th. 18-year-old Chantel Blanchard, she lost control. She swerved across three lanes. She hit that snowbank and went over. She spent four days in the hospital. She doesn't remember a thing about the accident. She has broken ribs and a skull contusion, and she still has problems with her left hand. So ODOT, after seeing these incredibly similar accidents in the same place, they investigated, and they ended up removing those snowbanks and making sure that the drains there were not uh, clogged. Well, and there was some back and forth of who who should have cleared it. The mm-hmm. ODOT said, hey, the city didn't tell us about the first accident or we would have gone and removed it. And, and there was some thought that maybe the city had a responsibility to move it. The, the, it sounds like we could have prevented the second accident mm-hmm. if we if collectively we had paid attention to the first. But they did provide the videos of it. They're not the easiest things to see. You kind of see the headlights rolling. Right, right. And all the TV stations had the video, I know, at least of the first one, because I remember seeing it, you know, and thinking how horrified I was by, oh my God, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, so I don't know. Nobody's nobody's blaming ODOT or anybody at this point, but that may come later. Who knows? It's today in Ohio. How many fish... Does Ohio dump into lakes and rivers each year so that people who fish can take them out? Laura? (laughs) When you put it that way, it seems silly, but a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And it's all part of, it's actually an economic development measure from the state. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources, their division of wildlife, stocks more than 40 million fish every year throughout the state, including in Lake Erie. The goal is to enhance sport fishing in Ohio, which... it contributes to about 16,000 jobs, $2 billion industry. I mean, huge. People do come from across the country to fish in Lake Erie. So they put um, sport fish, a cold water fish, or rainbow trout and brown trout, cool water fish, including walleye, yellow perch, and warm water fish like striped bass, channel catfish, and bluegill. And so um, Josh Gunter went out to Castalia, which produces the majority of the stock trout in the waterways. They raise about 450,000 steelhead annually for Lake Erie. Okay. It's today in Ohio. <laughs> Layla, you're supposed to ask me a oh. question. <laughs> That's right. So, Chris, <laughs> here is a question for you. <laughs> this this is uh, obviously one that is uh, a little bittersweet for some of us uh, on this podcast. It is, is the newsroom for The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com leaving downtown Cleveland? Well, I can answer that question, Layla. <laughs> Not that we plot this all out ahead <laughs> no, of time. No, no, no. We're leaving totally for, spontaneous. For, for a minute. <laughs> we, we're, we're, yes, we're leaving for a few months, but we're absolutely dedicated to having a downtown presence. Our, our problem is we've been at the precipice of selling the building we've been in multiple times, and it's fallen through every time. And so... We don't want to sign a lease for downtown space until this building is fully sold. I can't tell you how many times I've gone on tours of office space thinking we're about to sell the building, 
for not. And, you know, we've been doing it again. Brad Harmon, our president, uh, and I and David Knight have been out doing that. And we've got a couple of really, really good choices that we were excited about. But again, the building's not completely sold yet. It looks like it will sell in the next month. We are clearing out. We will be out of there uh, next Friday. And for the next X number of months, our base will be at the building in Tiedemann where the printing plant is. The fact is, we haven't been in that building for two years plus because of the pandemic. We are going to start back into the newsroom one day a week starting in May, and it'll be in Tiedemann, and then hopefully by fall, we will have a downtown location as well. We are committed to being downtown. I'm not bittersweet about it because the building we're in now is way too big for us. I mean, we moved into it in 2001. I remember it well, and it was packed. We filled, our company filled the whole building, and now we fill a corner of one mm-hmm. floor of the building. But how long so has the plane it, dealer it, it, occupied that block? I mean... Oh, I, I, yeah, I don't, I mean, it goes long, back... A long, long time, right? You know, early we should in the check Eric century. Heisig's story from yesterday, but I believe it's what the, was 50s. the 50s. Is yeah, it really I that think, long? Yeah, I think I, yeah, I think they well, they had multiple downtown locations, oh. but I, that the building we replaced in 2001, I, I thought it was the 40s, but maybe it's the 50s. Um, you know, and and it, it was a great building, but our, the problem for us being in that building now is that there's not enough people for critical mass for the neighborhood. So if a buyer gets it and fills that building, it'll be great for that neighborhood to have a thriving yeah population of workers there there are other developments going on all around it that are that are reforming buildings either as lofts or businesses so this is a great development this will be great for midtown Um, and i think our staff will be pretty excited about where we end up when we open an office downtown so that's the answer to that question Okay, Layla, it's, uh, it's on you. What did we learn from the State of the City oh address by Justin Bibb on his 100th day in office? Well, you know, I mean, Justin Bibb didn't really break any big news in this first State of the City speech. I, I was really hoping for an announcement of some big program rollout. You know, occasionally Frank Jackson would do that, but but really... Justin Bibb just took a moment to celebrate his his new talented staff and and all that they've been able to get done in his first 100 days in office which is a surprisingly impressive list of achievements and and you know my favorite thing about Justin Bibb is his transparency about the progress he's made on all of these initiatives he has that website where they you know tick down all of the steps that they've taken toward a lot of them and and that's probably why his speech felt short on surprises because we've been able to track it all so uh, but so far you know Bibb has made the necessary changes to the police consent decree to incorporate issue 24 and to continue the work of police reform. He's he's pledged millions of dollars toward reducing lead poisoning. He's uh, last week he he announced the expungement of 4000 cases of you know marijuana cases and that really unlocks barriers to employment for thousands of of Clevelanders and giving them that second chance. He he uh, has made changes to the West Side Market operations to make that that place more profitable and and forward looking and um, and so he talked a lot about those things. And and then, you know, as for what lies ahead, I, I was very excited and heartened by how often he mentioned 
protections for renters in Cleveland. He talked about, and I, I suspect this has a lot to do with Sally Martin being um, in his cabinet now. You know, he talked about the importance of passing legislation banning landlord discrimination against renters who pay rent with housing vouchers. He talked, he mentioned that several times, and um, I, I just love that. I think that if Cleveland leads uh, on that issue, that could catch fire in the county. And if that happens in the county, we could, you could, you'll really see lives changed here. Uh, but he also talked heavily about modernizing City Hall. This was a strong focus of his speech. He talked about the thousands of calls that the city received on the 311 line during that giant snowstorm and how there must be a better way for the public to communicate with City Hall than that archaic mode of communication. And he said that they're doing a full 311 audit and overhaul, and he's promising the best 311 system in the nation, and that that's just one component of his plan to modernize City Hall. He wants to, what he said was, bring City Hall to you. So, you know, you shouldn't have to haul it all down to City Hall to, to take care of business. And, and uh, you know, that's something that I don't think was ever contemplated really in the past 16 years. So it's, um, no. so I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting, uh, pretty exciting time. I think that is where we see the energy of, of the first millennial mayor of Cleveland. Yeah, I hear from people that keep saying, yeah, I'm not convinced yet. And they look at him as a kid that's going to stumble. But you got to look at his first hundred days. He, you know, he had to bring in a team of fresh perspectives. He certainly has done that. It's a very diverse team, diverse backgrounds, a lot of expertise, which we haven't seen come into City Hall for a long time. It's, you know, I think the kid's doing all right. You know, it's it's been a good run for all these people that are calling him a kid. Uh, we'll have to, you know, he did, I did, was impressed. You, you explained he uh, took ownership of the snow. He did. The snowstorm incident. When he originally talked about that, he was throwing some shade at the previous administration, which we talked about on this podcast. That's not the right way to do it. You can't really, you can't, you shouldn't do that. You should have been prepared, but he completely owned it. He did. He night. did. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, like, you know, we did. We, we were hard on him when he after the the snowstorm was kind of like you know we inherited a broken system and and really made it all about frank jackson's failures there but then last night he was very contrite about it i mean he said he said i you know this was my failure and i will do better and you know um it, it, it he even kind of took a beat like sat there for a second and had a you know gave the the audience exchanged a look with the audience about it i i felt like <laughs> that was to me owning up to your mistakes and acknowledging when you have learned a lesson from it is that is yeah. like that's that's leadership that's right there that's that's the that, real deal that's maturity right that's not some kid in the mayor's office that's, that's right. a leader look he's he's living up to the to the promises so far he ran on a campaign mm -hmm. of hope mm -hmm. of hope and change and fresh perspectives and i i defy anybody to show us where he has not lived up to that in his first hundred days. He's got a long way to go, but so far he's living up to the promise. It's very cool. They were packed into that thing like sardines, man. I hope it's not a super spreader event and for the Omicron. And a mask in sight, it seemed. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of scary. 
Okay, it's Today in Ohio. That's it for this week. We will not be back tomorrow. No episode on Friday. Take the time, if you haven't yet, to listen to all of the episodes that Seth Richards and I recorded with political candidates for statewide office. The most surprising probably was Jim Renacy. Give it a listen. See what you think. We'll be back Monday. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens.